Hi, I'm Maeve Doyle. I'm at Waddington Cousteau for Ian Davenport Lake. It's his 10th exhibition with Waddington Cousteau. It's the largest continuation of his unconventional methods. Ian paints with anything other than a paintbrush. And these things may be watering cans, syringes, just pouring. You may notice my voice is a bit different. I have the post-freeze croaky voice. If you went to freeze, spend the week doing the events, you'll know what it is, and that's what I sound like. I'll be better by next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Hi, Ian. Thank you for coming today. How are you? I'm, I'm good, thank you. Very pleased to see you. I'm looking forward to doing this conversation. Well, I just finished an interview in your exhibition catalogue with your brother, Philip, uh-huh. and I now have a little bit of an idea what your early life was like. Okay. Would you Thanks. care to expand on it? Well, I think um, we were very fortunate as kids. Um, my mum had been to art school, so she was really encouraging of any of our kind of creative pursuits. And as a sort of way of kind of crowd control, she would um, sit us around the kitchen table, give us all sorts of pens and paper to play around with. And we just got very comfortable in that environment and playing around with different materials. And I guess that's sort of where my artistic journey begins, really. And I think as a result of that, you know, some kids get given a football, some a tennis racket I got given paints and pencils. And as I sort of developed through school, I just became very good at drawing and painting and got encouraged to do that. I was lucky at school as well, I kind of won art prizes and the local village art prize. Kind of not unusual for people to go end up at art school. And I ended up at um, Goldsmiths College, aged 19, and it was the sort of perfect time to be an art student in London at this fantastic art college. It was a perfect time for so many reasons, and certainly historically in the history it kind of put Goldsmiths on the map for everyone else. Yeah, I think we were, again, I mean, it was just a sort of collision of lots of very fortuitous, I guess, circumstances. The Millard building where we all studied was the perfect art college. It had a bar, it had a pool table, and it had 120 studios for art students. And you were just left to get on with whatever you did. And when I went to do my interview, I kind of walked up to the gates and someone was firing brightly painted eggs from a cannon on the top floor and they were a textile student and I just thought oh my god you can just do anything here in this place it's great and that's kind of what I wanted so I'd had a very conventional childhood you know my parents lived in a little village in Cheshire so I wanted to sort of really understand what the kind of realms of an artist could be what being an artist meant and just to really go somewhere and try and push the boundaries of what that kind of language could be and Goldsmiths was the perfect environment to do that. I began painting quite conservatively in the life room and drawing and painting very recognisable figurative images really and then I just thought well, why have I come to London why am I doing this it's just ridiculous and I've come to Goldsmiths because I want to experiment so I had a three years of losing myself and finding myself and and trying to discover an artistic language and along the way I met some fantastic students and tutors who really helped me and I think I kind of got fast forwarded really by that experience you know it was I think if I'd have been left to my own devices it would have taken me at least 10 years to have kind of garnered all that experience and put it together in a cohesive way so I think one of the other things that happened, I I grew up in Cheshire, which is near Manchester, and as I was growing up as a kid, I listened to a lot of punk music and a lot of, there was a lot of bands like New Order Emerging and The Smiths and so on, and there's a great club called The Hacienda, which is, you know, really kind of very famous. So I went to that club and I saw a lot of bands, and I think there's something about the punk 
attitude, which is great because there's not necessarily a lot of, you know, one of the ideas was anybody can make music. And as a sort of, as a kid wondering if you can be an artist, you sort of think, well, you know, if musicians can do this. And actually what, what's great about punk is the energy, you know, perhaps visual artists can also do that. And I think probably thinking about Goldsmiths in the 80s, there was a lot of similar minded people went there thinking exactly the same thing, really, you know. And if you've got the right attitude and a kind of like, then, you know, you can do really amazing things. So I think that was also the other thing that kind of was, was an inspiration from early on and kind of directed, you know, what I did with my life. You know, it's very fortunate. So that fortune came in the way of Freeze in the Docklands, which was the Damien Hirst show, and also an instructor called Michael Craig Martin. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about both of those, sure, of course, the situation um, and the people involved? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, at the time, nobody really knew how influential Michael would be. It's only subsequently looking back that you can just see what fantastic tutor he was. And I think it's just really, really simple instruction. He, he was very encouraging. I remember once he, he told me that I'd made a painting he thought was beautiful. I was completely taken aback because normally, you know, Goldsmiths could be very, very critical. It's quite a hard course and the discourse was, was normally very harsh towards students. So this was like, wow. I think he just had a way of making people really uh, look at what they had made and understand what they'd made. And it sounds really simple, but that's quite a hard thing to do. Often people, when they're making something, have in their brain, holding their brain the idea of what they've made and they can't see what they've actually done. And it's a really, a really useful experience to be able to, to sort of unpick that and really look at what it is you've made and be objective about it. And he was able to do that. I think lots of different people picked up on different aspects of Michael uh, and why he was so good. But for me, that was one of the reasons. And he would pick out the essential qualities about what each student was good at and try and encourage them along that path. It was very sort of supportive. In regards to Freeze, I mean, you know, when we did it, I just think all of us thought this was, you know, what are we doing? We're kind of like in this warehouse in the middle of an absolute industrial wasteland. No one's ever going to see it. No one will be interested. But it's quite fun. And then it just kind of had its own sort of zeitgeist and people, kind of critics and different people started turning up. Michael again and some of the other tutors at Goldsmiths like John Thompson brought some of their friends along and art critics and it, it kind of gathered this momentum. And I think because all the, all the people who are involved or a majority of the artists who are involved have just gone on to become so successful in their own right, and looking back now you can see it was a sort of a really important point in the change of the art establishment in the um, 1980s in London and the art world. And I guess as well the galleries and art critics were looking for something a bit different. We'd had a lot of conceptual work in the 1970s and 80s and then British sculpture had been really dominant internationally, people like Richard Deakin and Anish Kapoor. And I guess there was a sort of like, well, what's going to happen next? And suddenly there's this very sort of dynamic group of young students who are sort of have a lot of confidence and bravura and are just trying to make things happen for themselves and it was just again it was the right moment. I mean I was very fortunate Michael also introduced me to Leslie Waddington who had a, um, a blue chip gallery in Cork Street where I still show and where this exhibition is taking place at the moment and he was another mentor so Leslie Waddington had shown artists like Peter Blake and Patrick Coldfield, Patrick Heron and these were you know artists that I'd really respected and looked at also had shown a lot of American artists like Agnes Martin and Julian Schnabel so he had a really great international platform as well and I was suddenly thrust into this you know very high-end blue chip gallery 
and show my work. And I got a phone call from Leslie Waddington one day when I first joined the gallery saying, I've hung one of your paintings in the corner gallery. I think you should come in and have a look. And he'd hung it next to a wall hole painting of dollars. And, you know, I wish I had a photograph of it because it was just so sweet. And to begin with, especially, he was incredibly encouraging of me and my work and kind of just really wanted to support what I was doing from very early on. I think I just, you know, I was in the right place at the right time. But I guess, that, you know, the other thing with that is you've just got to have some staying power and just keep, you know, keeping going is, is sort of really the, a, a tough thing, you know, having that tenacity. I think I read someone said that you're incredibly stubborn and that's part of the key to your success. I would put it a different way, but I would, yeah, I mean, you know, being tenacious is really important and having a sort of holding on to who you really are. I think because I, I felt like I had this language and I, you know, after I left college, I had a couple of years to play around and really experiment and it gave me a really great understanding about who I was and my parents and, you know, my mum in particular were really sort of, because I'd, I'd had that early experience of painting, just really trusted that voice. And I think sometimes, you know, you, you get a lot of criticism if you're an artist. And also that generation of artists were sort of breaking new ground. So there was a lot of criticism from a very conservative art world, really, from the, from the art critics. They didn't embrace a lot of the, the kind of emerging artists at all. So you kind of had to have like a bit of self-belief, really, you know, really hold on to your values and what you thought was, was right for you. Has that changed over the years? I mean, you've, there's been significant changes in the last 20. As I said earlier, we've just finished Freeze and it was the anniversary of its 20th. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been many changes, the, in, the onset of Instagram, social media. How have you seen the art world change over the years? Well, I think you picked up on two really important things, actually, you know, websites and Instagram, social media is, does give artists a platform outside of the galleries. And I think that's been really important. It means that you can own your voice a lot more easily. It's not edited or kind of ciphered by someone else. And I think in tandem with the gallery, you know, maybe a more formal presentation, it's great. But behind the scenes images, you know, I love seeing artists working in their studio and those kind of pictures. And it just brings your work to a much kind of wider audience audience and um, I think people just enjoy that. For me a lot of the the way that I create works of art it's quite engaging, it's very visual, it's very tactile. I pour a lot of paints and it's kind of really juicy material, great colours, it's very vibrant. So it looks good on a phone and I think people are really engaged in that and it's very immediate. And for me that's been very important. It's kind of opened the work up to a much wider audience I think who wouldn't necessarily come to a commercial gallery like this. And it's meant that I've been able to start doing a lot of pieces which are in the public realm and you know, more public commissions. And again, that's been very important. Can we talk a bit about your unusual methods, something that you're distinguished by and for and because of um, syringes, paint cans? Yeah, I, mean, I think I wanted to question what and how people made paintings, what the basic pre-givens were. You know, why did you use oil paint? Why did you use acrylic paint? Why did you paint on a canvas? Why did you use a brush? And as a result of just kind of going, well, what if you use this? What if you kind of use a wind machine? What if you kind of pour paint rather than use a brush? All these different things started to happen. And, you know, and I just found that, you know, very, uh, very engaging. 
I guess. And I think it was quite intuitive as well, because when I was a kid, I started to mix glues into paint, and I was always experimenting, even back then, you know, even when I was kind of drawing and painting quite conventional things, I was doing weird things with paint, and I just sort of followed my nose, really, with it. I think in this particular exhibition, that's been taken to its extreme point, really. So we're looking at a big painting called Lake Number no. One, and there's very bold vertical bands of paint which have been poured down uh, a metal panel and at the bottom they sort of cascade and puddle into this enormous great big pool of liquid and it's very very vibrant and it just sort of emerges together to make these very organic beautiful shapes. And that's well, unmanipulated by you. It's, it is manipulated a bit but I think you have to be careful with when you use the organic nature of paint not to make it too contrived. It, it, does, it has its own energy so you want to direct it and it's very very carefully directed but you, you can sort of make it look very contrived if you push and pull it too much. It, it, you can just look like you're doing too much to it. So you have to have a slightly hands-off approach but kind of, you know, everything's set out quite carefully, the way the paint's mixed, the angle of the panels, this floor section, for example, I had to build a massive subframe underneath where all this paint has puddled and pooled at a very, very slight angle, so the paint is encouraged to spread out at a very slow rate so it doesn't crack and dry too quickly. So there's quite a lot of technical things that go on behind the scenes to make it look very effortless. I remember someone talking to me about my sort of techniques and kind of crazy things I do, and I said one of the things I really want to do with painting is to make it look very easy and simple. And we started having, um, you know, a conversation about Jimmy Stewart, the actor, and he said, you know, the great thing about Jimmy Stewart is he makes acting look as simple as breathing, and you don't even believe you're watching someone act. It's just so natural. And I guess it's that kind of thing that I want. I want it just to feel very, very, very loose, very beautiful, like watching a great ballerina perform, you know, and you, you just kind of like, oh, wow. Um, you know, it's that sort of effect. Or Niagara Falls, or something <laughs> exactly, like that. You know, and, and, and Will thought this looked like an aerial shot from outer space. Will okay, Fitzpatrick amazing. produced Well, that's great, actually. I mean, the... the sort of subtitles for these two works. They're called Lake One and Two, but I thought that they suggested a lot of that imagery. So this one in brackets, I think it's called Tide, because to me it looks like this tide of different seas. And uh, the one next door, Lake Two, is called Tectonic, because it feels like these tectonic plates that are moving together and shifting and fragmenting and breaking up. Um, you know, but I love all the details of the paint. You know, I really would encourage viewers to come in and have a look at this exhibition, or, you know, listeners rather, because I think you really get this visceral impact of the material, and it's, yeah, it kind of really gets to your gut. I would say that you understand the medium of paint very well, and that you also have a vision of what you want to do. So where's the point where you just have faith in where the paint goes? I think a lot, of, a lot of the things that happen that really interest me come from studio accidents. And this isn't something that I predicted or thought I would do. And the fact that uh, these sort of drip lines of paint emerged through a studio accident. I was trying to make some, some little dot paintings and I was using a syringe to make the dots. And then the syringe kept on blocking, so I kept trying to test it against the wall. And I realized it made these beautiful lines, which was just much more interesting than the little dots, which were kind of a bit frustrating to do. But then at the bottom, the paint started to merge and pull together. And I thought, okay, that's really fabulous as well. That's, that's really interesting. And it took me a couple of years to figure out how to actually include that in a painting. So it was a very simple observation and then, you know, quite a lot of technical research to sort of figure out how to do it. But at its heart, it's a really, really simple idea. It's, it's a vertical lines of, of uh, material that just merge together. And I think one of the reasons that 
you know, I really find these paintings interesting is that stripes as a composition are so universal. And when I started painting these, the audience of my work really grew because it's something that people are so aware of and they, they, they're so familiar with it that they kind of, they don't feel fearful of it actually. But the way that I've encouraged the paint to break and the, the organic nature of paint, of paint and what it does, people haven't really seen before. So putting the two things together was a way of opening out this new language. And it sounds really simple in retrospect to do that, but it kind of like it was a lot of sort of head scratching and figuring it out and what pain's going to do this and that. So this it's never easy, is no, it? No, exactly. So making it simple is, is never, you're right, it's never easy, but that's the end game anyway. I, I don't quite know how to phrase this, but I feel as though you're looking for the paint to find an underlying meaning of its own. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, it does. I think these, you can read a lot of metaphors into this, and um, I've always been interested in the organic nature of paint and been driven towards gravity, making these very sculptural paintings. And I think it's just because, you know, looking back, actually, over, for a very long period of time, there's this sort of very elemental nature to my work. I, I like to use currents of air or the gravitational pull of our bodies, all this idea of liquid paint moving in it, kind of creating these tides. And I think these are things that we see all around us, and I feel like I'm really driven to that. A lot of my contemporaries were making paintings which were about their environment, the urban environment they existed, and I feel that like my paintings are about our environment, but maybe in a sort of, as a more of the sort of space that we inhabit and our experience of being on the planet as a whole. It's just something I've recently started to think about a lot, and it's just, you know, the images and the way that the, the paintings look is naturally suggesting that. How does your interest in music, playing the drums, relate to your art practice? Um, well, I'm very interested in music and I've always played instruments, particularly the drums actually, and there's a very rhythmic nature in the paintings. The way that the paint is poured, the timing of it is, is really crucial to the success of the paintings. And, and in this exhibition you'll see that some paintings have got very, very broad bands. They're almost uh, like chords of music. And then some of the paintings have these much more delicate, fine bands. They have a sort of digital pulse to them. So I think that's, that's kind of really important. And that timing that a drummer sort of brings to music, you know, that kind of locks in the whole of a musical recording, that also locks my paintings in. So there's this kind of beat and pulse that kind of runs through them. So I think that's also quite important to understanding them. What is art for? Ooh, God, that's a big question. I mean, for me, I think for an artist, it's about trying to understand who you are in the world in the widest possible sense, I think. And then there's so many good things about art to our culture, to our communities that it brings. You know, it really, it makes us understand ourselves better. It brings people together, being creative, brings so many positive things to do with Look at the film industry, for example, or music industry, you know, how much money and finance they bring. Um, there's just so many, so many good things about it. I actually don't understand why it's not encouraged more in schools. You know, I'm kind of completely like, we're living in this amazing visual culture. It feels like, why aren't we teaching people to understand this visual culture? It's like understanding a language. It's so important. If uh, you could live with one piece of work, what would it be and why? And money's not the deciding factor. Well, my lovely wife, Sue, um, is also an artist, uh, Sue Arrowsmith, and we have a beautiful watercolour, very large watercolour that she painted a few years ago in, in our kitchen. And I look at it every day, and that has a lot of meaning for me because artists have a lot of struggles in their lives. And for Sue, it took her a long time to establish a reputation in the, in the art world. 
and I think that, that that particular work was sort of a turning point for her. So I love looking at it every day and, and just you know sharing that struggle with another artist has been has been really a fantastic journey. If you're on Cork Street, please stop by Waddington Cousteau to see Ian Davenport's Lake. It runs until the 11th of November, 2023. Thank you, Ian Davenport. You're very welcome. Lovely to talk to you. You've been listening to Maeve Doyle's Private View. This podcast is produced by Will Fitzpatrick at Soho Radio. The music is by Korshid Homi. Thank you for listening. <laughs>